You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey listeners, you might recall back in October of last year, aerospace company Blue Origin, famously founded by Jeff Bezos, completed its second human flight to suborbital space. This trip was a first for many, and not just William Shatner. Aboard the New Shepard rocket was attorney and now astronaut Audrey Powers. This week, we're delighted to have Audrey on the cast to share her experience in zero gravity and the career opportunities that led her there. For the past 20 years, our space program has been interdependent with Russia's. And with all that is going on in Ukraine, the future of our international space partnerships are very much in question. We hope this conversation with Audrey Powers provides a bright spot and an inspiration during dark times. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm not here alone today. No, indeed. We have Cindy Ryan, former general counsel of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and friend of the cast. And she brought someone with her. I heard she brought an astronaut slash lawyer. Is that a market now? It is now, Lisa. And hello, everyone. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to talk to Audrey Powers today, who certainly has the name of a cartoon character, right? Audrey Powers, <laughs> astronaut. I love that. She sailed into suborbital space with William Shatner. No, I'm not kidding. This happened. And she works for Blue Origin, previously as Deputy General Counsel and currently as Head of Mission Operations for the New Shepherd Program. Audrey, thanks for coming. Hi, it's really very nice to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So Audrey, take us back to when you were growing up. Did you ever imagine this career path? I definitely envisioned and hoped to go to space one day. I hoped to be an astronaut. I don't know that I ever imagined this would be the career path that would get me there. I've had a very circuitous route to to this time of my career. I was an engineer originally. I had dreams of being an engineer and graduated from Purdue, their aeronautical and astronautical school of engineering. And after being an engineer for about 10 years, I went to law school, hoping to remain in the space industry, very much connected to human space flight. As an engineer, I had actually worked in the intelligence community for a time. And so I was luckily able to remain in, in the aerospace industry. And that's how I found my way to Blue Origin, originally as a lawyer. After about eight years at Blue, this opportunity to lead the mission operations team was presented to me, and I was very happy to take the opportunity to get back to a little bit more of my technical roots, but people still hit me up about legal things all the time. I'm now very thoughtful about, do I have my legal hat on or do I have my engineering hat on? I I don't think that's a normal career path at all and, and probably not a normal career path to becoming an astronaut. I did not envision the the path that my career has become. Okay, so it makes me wonder if Mr. Bezos is trying to save money because he gets a lawyer and an astronaut. That's pretty efficient, (laughs) I think. So let's, can you put your lawyer hat on for just a second? And let's talk about space. What in the heck is the legal structure anyway? Talk to us about that. Right. It's actually a, a very interesting legal structure. So I guess they're taking two separate kind of the international architecture of space law and the national architecture of space law. And in a national sense, The FAA has been regulating this industry for over 20 years. 
in a very, very unique way, though. A lot of us are familiar with how the FAA goes about regulating the aviation side, you know, very, very stringent certification programs for passengers, jets, and, and also for general aviation. They have a very, very different approach to the commercial space side. So they regulate commercial space operators like Blue Origin for the purposes of ensuring public safety. So the uninvolved public, both on the ground and in the airspace, the FAA regulates our operation and the design of our vehicles to make sure that those people are protected from the hazards of space flight. They have a much more hands-off approach to the regulation of the occupants on board, so the astronauts on board. They actually have very, very little jurisdiction over astronaut safety. And that is something that's in industry called the moratorium. So there is a moratorium on the FAA's ability to regulate astronaut safety. And the reason for that is Congress very much wanted this kind of nascent industry to really get up and running and have a lot of freedom in design choices to make technical advances. So that's very much the focus of a lot of our regulations at a national level. The FCC also regulates things like, you know, transmissions to and from space vehicles from the ground and, and also to satellites in orbits. So there is definitely some regulatory oversight at a national level, for sure. The private legal aspects are kind of developing. So things like liability among parties that are operating in space or on other planets, a lot of that law is unsettled. Things like property rights in space, something that we, we debate heavily because we're not quite sure where those things are going to go. And a lot of those conversations take us to the Outer Space Treaty. So there's definitely an international architecture of, of treaties that govern the parties to those treaties. And the, and the most famous one is the Outer Space Treaty, written decades ago and in very broadly spoken terms to try to govern the behavior of parties in space. And so there's a lot of trying to interpret what those very broad provisions of the Outer Space Treaty mean for things like property rights and what's the responsibility of a national government over the parties that come from their country and, and explore space. There is a lot of law out there. There's great debate as to what those laws mean and how they'll progress as this industry really becomes something and, and establishes a market, which, which I think is what we're starting to see, a super interesting place to practice law because a lot of it is just unformed, you know, very, very, very young. You've mentioned many legal issues that you probably are addressing at Blue. What would be some additional issues, particularly maybe in the national security field that we're facing right now with commercial and government space? Sure. Well, very interestingly, the government's reliance on the launch industry goes back for decades, right? So the need for government contracting to support DOD missions and, and national security space missions has been something that has really dominated as far as a market, dominated this industry for decades. You see one of the most successful launch providers ever, United Launch Alliance, one of, one of the most successful and safe operators of orbital launch vehicles, their primary customer is the U.S. government and, and has been for decades. So you have these very developed launch vehicle procurement programs that DOD carries out for purposes of keeping their national security system up and running. That's probably the place that is the most obvious interaction and the most obvious demand from, from the national security community on the space industry. 
There's also, as we have more activity in space, certainly things like the International Space Station, which I worked on as a young engineer at NASA, you know, that, that was really a monumental step forward as far as intergovernmental agreements and relationships among powers that used to be, you know, it was a Cold War era that kind of birthed the nation's space programs. And then we moved out of the Cold War and into the shuttle program. And it was kind of like, what was, what is the next big technological advance going to be in this industry? And it ended up that these two superpowers, the US and Russia got together and created the space station program, which is now going on, you know, 22 years of human presence on that amazing orbiting outpost. So you've seen it bridge gaps from a foreign policy perspective. At the same time that you have that just amazing accomplishment of a partnership among these types of countries, you also have Russia doing something like testing an anti-satellite missile this year and some of the actions that China has, has taken to test you know, ICBM type technology. And, and that is a real concern for the countries that are party to these outer space type treaties because the, the foundation of those treaties are the peaceful uses of outer space. And so how do we deal with a foreign power that is doing things like creating anti-satellite technology at the same time that we are partnering with them on a very peaceful effort in the International Space Station program. There are all these interesting nuances surrounding security and national security and what is the position of the U.S. government going to be towards some of these other foreign powers. And it, it really becomes an interesting part of the conversation in these relationships. So there's, there's a whole lot to talk about <laughs> there, Cindy, as far as U.S. national security interests. All right. So you mentioned the fact that the Chinese, you know, tested a hypersonic intercontinental missile. And so I want to kind of come back to that before I let you get off of this topic, which I imagine is a little less exciting for you than sort of the actual flying of the spaceship. But, so, and I'm going to call it that if that's okay. But I mean, there's got to be, you know, foreigners that you need to hire. There have to be things like mm. expert control issues. Can yep. you talk a little bit about that one? And then two, if you don't mind, sort of fill in the gaps here. When Chinese test a hypersonic intercontinental missile capable of torpedoing satellites, what does that mean for a company like Blue? Yeah, well, the, so the first part of your question, export controls, like a, a very important topic in the realm of national security, right? How does the United States protect missile technology. I mean, if you look at the vehicle that I launched to space on New Shepard, it's this suborbital rocket. It is missile technology. It, it is. We have the missile technology control regime where this type of vehicle is clearly listed on that and is highly restricted as far as providing foreign access to it. So something this industry had to get past is how do we fly foreign astronauts on a vehicle that is listed under the missile control <laughs> missile technology control regime? And it has required, from an export control perspective too, us in, in private industry to really work with the State Department, for example, and the Commerce Department. They own part of the export control regime too. Really work with them to define really specifically what technology are we trying to protect here? What are we okay allowing foreigners to have access to? entering into licensing agreements or, or securing licenses from the U.S. government to be able to 
employ foreign nationals if, if we feel we need to do that for some specific purpose or just to engage with foreign customers. Someplace we're seeing this a lot in the industry right now is there's great interest in operators standing up foreign launch sites. So Blue Origin's launch site for New Shepard is down in West Texas. And something that Virgin Galactic, who is, who is another commercial space flight operator, is looking at is how to fly their Spaceship Two vehicle from an overseas location. And there are many foreign governments who have also approached Blue Origin about like, look at this emerging market that is surrounding your vehicle. Can you bring that to our country? And we have started having really in-depth conversations with the State Department about how do we export this type of technology to a, a foreign launch site? And could we actually employ foreign nationals, give them all of this information about our rocket for them to fly it, for them to actually operate it? And so there's a lot of progress that has been made and, and a structure that's starting to form that requires, you know, intergovernmental agreements between the U.S. government and whom, you know, whoever the foreign country is that, that would be hosting this this launch site to really define what we are okay transferring and to whom over there? Like, would it have to be a government entity that is the recipient of the technology or could it just be private citizens that we hire or, or, or partner with? So there are a lot of complications surrounding that aspect of national security as far as progressing our commercial operations. And a lot of that is focused on technology transfer. So, so export controls just dominates that. As commercial companies, we're very sensitive to that. We don't want to export technology that, that concerns the U.S. government or, or that could fall into the wrong hands and, and put our government at a, at a disadvantage. But we also want to progress the market and, and we want to respond to customer demands in other countries. So the export control piece of it is something that I dealt a lot with when I was a lawyer every day and, and a real challenge in this industry, for sure, even just focusing on commercial stuff. The second part of your question regarding the Chinese launch late last year, this is really concerning for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I think General Hyten, I believe at the time, made a number of comments about how quickly the Chinese seem to be progressing through this, this missile technology development. It's very concerning when you know, we see evidence of this technology being tested and tested very successfully is, is what it appeared. And for commercial companies, there are a lot of similarities between the rockets that we launch and this type of technology. So you know, how was it that China was able to develop this type of technology so quickly? It is very concerning to not understand what the purposes are for that technology development over there, or at least, you know, folks in, in the commercial industry like me it certainly don't have the insight into why a foreign government might be developing that capability. And, and China, for example, is not a signatory to the Outer Space Treaty. And so, they're not bound by the same norms that the rest of us have signed on to, which is to use outer space for, for peaceful purposes. There's a lot that is concerning about something like that from the private industry's perspective, simply because there's a lot that we don't understand about why they're standing up that capability. Many of the people that we've talked to have talked about the law of unintended consequences. And I guess one mm -hmm. of the questions about launch is, what are the implications, first of all, of, of launch, especially if it's going to start expanding mm -hmm. more space travel to, you know, the climate, that's one yeah. thing. 
But I also think that the second thing is this idea of travel and exploration is rising as well. And it's also mm -hmm. being touted by some, I won't name them, but I'm sure you know who they are, but the last name rhymes with Tusk, um, have also sometimes suggested that it might be an alternative to life on Earth in the event that we completely screw it up here. So mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. The second thing is outer space is filthy, right? I mean, in terms of at least the immediate mm. orbital outer space. And I wondered if you could talk about sort of those various things, which ultimately may have to do with our climate. Yeah, there, there is a lot to this, this climate discussion. And I think this is lost on, on you know, a global audience who sees a billionaire building a, a launch vehicle. And Jeff Bezos, when he founded Blue Origin over 20 years ago. I mean, his vision is millions of people living and working in space. And the purpose of creating a system that can get all of those people up to space is to benefit the earth. So for the benefit of earth is a big piece of our, our vision. And we've, we have a lot of data-driven research that we've done over the years that kind of supports why we're doing what we're doing. If you take the heavy pollutants and the things that so adversely impact our environment and you move those things to space, you extend the life of Earth, you extend the amount of time that resources will, will last. If you look at the resources that humans use just to exist, that is a finite thing. And so moving some of those demands off of Earth and more particularly moving some of the pollutants, whether it's heavy industry, things like that, off of the Earth, you actually benefit the Earth's climate and you extend the amount of time that we can live on this. Like every, everybody agrees Earth is the best planet, right? Like you, there are no other habitable planets out there that we can just like hop to and like pick up our existence here and just morph it over there. Like Earth is the best planet and yet it's, it's a finite resource. So how do we make it last as long as possible? And the way that Blue Origin is going about this is how do we make getting to space easier so that all of these industrialists and, and entrepreneurs will figure out how they want to use space and, and move industry and business to space. And so you got to make getting there easier. You got to drive the cost of launch down. You got to drive the cost of space access down. And the primary technologies that we've been focusing on to do that also support environmental and climate issues. So why for the first 60 years of, well, you know, for the most part, 60 years of, of space travel from this planet, have we been throwing away rocket boosters? Millions and millions of dollars of hardware thrown into the ocean every single time we launch a satellite. Like that, that has been the standard in our industry for as long as we've been launching things. You look at the propellants that those vehicles use. They are, in, in some cases, heavy pollutants of the atmosphere. And so when Jeff Bezos started Blue Origin, he said, we're going to create reusable launch vehicles. We got to start making stuff reusable. So enter the New Shepard program, which is you know, just a suborbital program. And so that's the first step. We're going to create this reusable technology. We're going to create engines that can throttle back to Earth and land a booster. And we're going to start reusing these things. And we're going to learn about that technology. And then we're going to scale that into an orbital vehicle program. So we have a much, much larger vehicle program called New Glenn that will launch orbital and moon 
emissions and 99% reusable. Our new Shepard vehicle is 99% reusable. So suddenly you're not throwing away all of that hardware every time, right? So you're not, you're not filling up the bottom of the ocean with these huge booster vehicles. And then you look at the propellant. So the propellant that we use on New Shepard is liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Literally when that engine burns, the byproduct is, is steam. So we also looked at how do we create engines that are cleaner burning than some of these previous fuels that we've used in the industry. So everything that Blue Origin is doing is looking at you know, the point of your question. How does this industry impact the environment and and the climate of Earth in a positive way and, and kind of undo some of the habits that the industry has, has developed over the past 50 or 60 years. So we are, we are very much driven by the environment. And, and it is not for the purpose of, oh, when we destroy the Earth, we need someplace else to go. It is entirely for the purpose of sustaining Earth and making it available to us for much longer than it, than it otherwise would be. I think the other thing that a lot of people don't understand, but I wonder if you could sort of characterize it a little bit and also talk about how it would impact blue. And the fact is uh, there are a lot of satellites up there and there's a lot of junk. Mm. One of the things about this emerging commercial space industry is all of the amazing ideas that some of these companies are bringing to the table. I mean, you have companies that are studying things like space tugs and space out, they can literally go up there easily, collect up debris and, and bring it back down, like cause it to deorbit and burn up in the atmosphere quicker than it would otherwise do by, by itself. So there is an amazing amount of debris out there. Early in my career, I mean, we would the bigger the space station got, we would have to maneuver it out of the way of space junk that is being tracked. So there are amazing resources originally developed by, by DOD, we're, we're all familiar with NORAD and, and those capabilities there. They're, they're literally tracking space, pieces of space junk flying through orbit and notifying places like NASA, hey, there's something coming at the International Space Station, you're going to have to maneuver it. Or like the worst situation, tell the astronauts to get into a deorbit vehicle, get, get into the Soyuz or get in, go get into Crew Dragon because they might have to deorbit if the station gets hit by a piece of floating debris. Like a really t- like terrible scenarios to be in if you are a human being trying to live off planet, but also very destructive for things like the very expensive and important satellites that, that we have out there for commercial purposes, for national security purposes. So these assets are so, so valuable and can really be threatened by the debris that's out there. And it, it is a thing to have to maneuver these functioning spacecraft and space stations to get out of the way of debris. And there are all kinds of cool technologies. I mentioned the, the space tug. There's been a lot of news in recent years about these mega constellations of satellite, these, these much smaller satellites that are doing things like deploying broadband to the entire planet. And so launching, you know, hundreds of very, very small satellites at the same time to create these these communication systems in orbit, that's all well and good for the communication needs of humans on Earth, but it also puts a whole lot of stuff in orbit. And when that stuff runs out its useful mission life, how on earth are we going to get it down? <laughs> you know, and how, how are we going to make sure that it dis- disintegrates in the atmosphere? So this is, this is a huge, huge problem that some really cool companies are looking at trying to solve. 
I, I love hearing the enthusiasm for the <laughs> issues and for this industry uh, in your voice, Audrey. I know, I know you love it. So you were talking about Earth being the best planet mm-hmm. and hence write the name Blue Origin. So what was it like? People are going to want to know this, right? <laughs> what was it like to launch and to be able to see Earth up mm-hmm. in low, low Earth orbit? Well, it's for, it's interesting. When you were asking your question, I had this flashback to looking out the window at the Earth and kind of the thin blue line of the of the atmosphere that that space explorers speak about. And it really, I feel very fortunate to have flown with William Shatner because he was so poetic about it after after landing and and in some of his post-flight interviews, he was just so so thoughtful and so eloquent about the impact that that view had on him. I feel very lucky because, you know, I, I came out of that spacecraft and was like a bumbling, you know, like I don't even know how to put into words what I just experienced it or how to describe it. We flew 14 private citizens to space last year on, on New Shepard and, and we'll hopefully fly more this year. And every single one of them came back very, very affected. Even a short flight like that, right? Our our flight is, you know, 12, 13 minutes long, something like that. And even just that short, that kind of introduction to space, the kind of getting a taste of what space travel and space exploration is, we've seen it really, really impact these people. And something that all of them talk about in our training program, we say, you know, you've got a few minutes, three or four minutes of zero gravity time. Think about how you want to spend that time. Do you want to spend it doing somersaults and and headstand, all those fun things or, or throwing, you know, Nerf footballs around or whatever it might be, or do you want to look out the window? And we, you know, we certainly don't, we are not prescriptive about how astronauts spend their time up there. It's, you know, think about how you'll get the most out of this experience. And and my crew of four, when the trainers said that to us, okay, you're going to plan what you what you do up there. We all looked at each other a little sheepishly and said, we just want to look out the window. Like we don't we don't want to do somersaults or gymnastics or anything like that. If you want skills thrown to you, find find somebody else because I'm going to be looking out the window. And we all felt really really strongly that we wanted to see that view. We wanted to understand this thing, you know, the overview effect that you hear astronauts talk about this experience and this feeling that they get by seeing the earth from that perspective. And it is beyond, you know, having been in this industry for, for 22, 23 years now, and having known a lot of astronauts, this is something that I've heard about and I, and I've thought about a lot. And it still was such sensory overload when I finally experienced it. Um, the, the colors were so, I will never forget the colors. They're so, so vibrant, the white clouds and the blue line. And then the blackness of space was just so black and like thick and rich. It was not like, you know, standing on the ground on a clear night and, and looking at looking at the blackness of a, of a clear sky. It was even something more dense than that. Even someone like me who's thought about it for a long time, I found it to be just so much more overwhelming from a sensory perspective than I hoped it would be. I certainly hoped it would be that, and it it was even more so. And from that perspective, you were technically in space, correct? Mm -hmm. And because you did that launch and you went over 
the line, you're an astronaut, you got your wings. Right. So this is, this is a very interesting thing and something I've been asked a lot, actually, since I was able to be part of this flight you know, do you consider yourself an astronaut? You know, you didn't go to the space station and, and stay there for three months or you didn't go, you know, you didn't stay in orbit for, for 10 days like the space shuttle used to, you know, do you, do you consider yourself a real astronaut? And, and interestingly, you know, our, our vehicle is called New Shepard because it's named after Alan Shepard, the, the first American in space. And our vehicle follows a very similar trajectory to the one that his Mercury vehicle followed. It's a suborbital trajectory. So it crosses the Kármán line is, is the line that you're talking about, which is the internationally recognized boundary of space, 100 kilometers. And so our vehicle launches and, and the capsule separates and it travels above the Kármán line and it stays up there for a few minutes and then it comes back down and lands under parachutes. It does not make a complete orbit of the Earth, which is why it's called a suborbital trajectory and very much the same trajectory that that Alan Shepard took. You know, a lot of people I, I would personally love and very much enjoy training for years to go live on the space station for, you know, six months or eight months like like that. That is very appealing to me. A lot of folks, people in my own family are like, I would never want to do that. Like, no, thank you. I don't want to go be a professional astronaut in the, in the kind of NASA sense that we all grew up with. But when they see what I did and the experience that we're offering on New Shepard, you know, go spend a week, train for a few days, and then go on this suborbital trajectory, they would do it in a minute. Like, I would do that in a second just to get a taste of what it's like, just to just to see what, what space travel is and to see what your zero gravity is and to feel like what it feels like to launch on a booster, you know, and come down in a capsule under parachutes. There are so many people who have reached out to me and said, I would do that in a set. I would never go train to live on the space station, like no interest in going up there for a year, but I would absolutely do what you did if, if I could. And I think what we're seeing is this industry is changing the nature of what it means to be an astronaut, what it means to explore space and what it means to want these types of experiences. And that's, that is what an astronaut has always been to me, someone who craves you know, the exploration of space, no matter how long or short it, it might be. And I'm, I'm very proud to be involved with the New Shepard program because I think we're showing that the nature of astronaut can maybe be a bit different than the one that we grew up with and we can expand what it means to be an astronaut. I think this makes you, Audrey, the first attorney astronaut. <laughs> Right. My, my father, who Cindy, I, I know, you know, a longtime intelligence community lawyer, yes, was was very quick, I think, to research, maybe just using Google, but, um, you know, uh, text me and said, I think, have you heard that? Are you the first lawyer that has, <laughs> that has traveled to That's space? And I said, geez, I have no idea. And he said, I think you are. He's like, this is what retired intelligence community lawyers do. They research. Well, that's what I texted him. I said, is Audrey the first attorney astronaut that's what yeah. i texted him and he said i don't know i'm gonna look it up yeah yeah i i think so there are a few other great legal colleagues that i have in the industry who claim the same thing so i have not researched it myself but i am hearing that this is is possibly true well on that yeah. score let's uh, let's pivot for just a second we can't let you leave without asking you to give young men and women advice who may want to work in space exploration, space mm-hmm. tourism, any of that. And uh, if you don't mind, reach back a little further, because in addition to what the lawyers might want, 
what sort of education and training might benefit them? Certainly when I was thinking about what to do, where to go to college, what to study, all of those sorts of things, it was very much, you had to be an engineer or you had to be a military pilot. Like those were kind of the two career paths to becoming a professional astronaut, a, a NASA astronaut. They broaden that certainly to, to scientists and by with the arrival of the International Space Station, a lot of life sciences study and, and medical studies. So you saw that expand to, to the life sciences a great deal. But I think what we're seeing and what's been really, really fun for me talking to younger, younger kids who are interested in working in the space industry is they're thinking about a lot of different types of careers now that I never would have thought of when I was younger. Um, so we need business people. We need entrepreneurs. We need folks. We have an entire customer experience team that have designed our, our astronaut experience. And I assure you, none of those people ever thought they would be working for a space, <laughs> for a space company. So in addition to the hard sciences and that, like there will always be a place for that. You're like, we've got to create the technology to get stuff there. Right. But you also have, like, if, if you're talking about long duration space flight and people living off of the planet on space station, orbiting space station type type environments, which is something Blue is, is very interested in and, and is pursuing, you're going to need people to figure out how to make the food, how to like, how do you get water there? How do you take care of these people from a medical perspective? How do you take care of these people from an emotional and, and mental perspective? And, and some of the study that NASA has done on long duration space flight using the space station has just really made great, great progress in these areas. Like we are going to have to tend to the whole health of people who are living off the planet and you need all sorts of folks to do that. So musician, like I'm not going to space if I can't have music, if I can't have art, if I can't have good food, like all of these things that I love. Right. And, and so I, I think it's really fun to think about what what place those careers will have in space, because I, I'm I'm convinced that there will be a place for them. So it's nice to not just talk about you know I love science and math. I will never hesitate to talk about those things with with young people. But it's it's fun when I get the question from it, you know my my best friend's daughter's Girl Scout troop, a bunch of ten year olds, and one of them says, "Ert, are you? I want to be a chef. Can a chef work in space?" And I'm like. Honey, absolutely. Like I, you are on my team. If you want to go be a chef in space, and she turns to her brother and says, "See, I told you. Like I told you, they're going to need chefs in space." So, like I, I love that. That is that you know how how kids are thinking about the future of of space flight. Well, Audrey, you are just inspirational as well as educational, and we have <laughs> really enjoyed all that you have shared with us. And thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thanks. I, I very much appreciate the invitation. And it's all, it's, it is just really fun for me to talk about all the things Blue Origin is doing and, and to get back to the intelligence community. All right. So we, we can't let you leave without saying the Vulcan salutation. So live long and prosper, Audrey. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and uh, let me just say this, um, you know, I don't know, by the time we got to which, like, uh, the second series of, of Star Trek, it was no longer where no man has gone before. It became uh, where no one has gone before. <laughs> so glad to see you in there. Glad to see you do it. I certainly have the right name. If I were uh, writing a screenplay <laughs> about an astronaut, 
Audrey Powers would probably be an awesome name for that. <laughs> I, I cannot claim any credit for that. I have to blame my parents entirely for the awesome name. Well, it's fabulous. And so thanks again for coming. And Thank thanks you. to everybody for listening tonight. Our guest has been Audrey Powers. She's an astronaut and attorney, and she's head of missions operations at Blue Origin. So we will see you next Thursday when our new episodes drop. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing you national security law every week and new issues and new news. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Hey, Cindy, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. We're glad you could come too. Thank you so much. It's just been quite a delight. All right. We never take your attention for granted. If you have topics you want us to cover or feedback, find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in my individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Now, same cannot be said of Miss Cindy, who no longer has any of these obligations. She's always here <laughs> as a woman of the world. Nothing less and nothing more. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 